So this new series is called Keys to the Kingdom. Unlocking doors, unlocking doors of change through the Sermon on the Mount. Now when you picture that, when you picture a key and you picture a door, and you picture the kingdom, you, you kind of picture how do we get into the kingdom, right? Well, the premise of this series is not about how we go through the door of the kingdom, not how, uh, about how we get into heaven, but about getting the kingdom into us. Not about us getting into the kingdom, but about the kingdom and its values getting into us. You see, whatever's at the center of your life shapes the circumference of your life. So, for most of us, you know, we're, we're kind of an amoeba, right? Remember the amoeba, right? That just a different shape, you know, for, I mean, just sort of oblong and, and, and distorted in some places. But the more that you center your life on the kingdom of God, on Christ, the more it clarifies all the way out to the circumference. Because everybody has values. And those values are shaped by what's at the center. You say, everybody has values? Yeah, even pirates have values. You know that. Pirates have values. Remember that, that series, uh, this is where I get all my information about pirates. It's from Disney. Uh, <laughs> but, but you remember the series, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, where uh, Captain Barboza says to Jack Sparrow, he says, stick to the code, Jack. Stick to the code. And, and, and the funny thing is about that, that line is that it's a very ironic line because the code, the pirate's code, is really about just being selfish, right? <laughs> That's the joke. Now, stick to the code is just like, do what's right by you. Stick to the code. Well, I mean, that is a value. You say, well, that's a lack of values. That's a lack of virtue. Yeah, it's a lack of virtue, but it's not a lack of values. In fact, those are the values of the ancient world. The norms that shaped the society. The things that people aspire to, where the strong ate the weak. Those were the values. Those were what, what shaped the norms of people's behavior. It's what people looked to and said, I want to be like that. See, in the ancient world, you can sort of picture this list of what it was like before the cross. Before the cross. The strong There was, there, there were two different sets of laws. One, a, a law of, of dignity for the haves and a law that reduced people to objects for the has-nots. Women were, were not considered equal. They, they, were just, they were just valued for childbearing, period. They were even considered objects. People were untouchable who had diseases. This was all before the cross. Before the cross. These were the norms of the world. And then came the cross. And groups of people centered on the cross, centered on the values of the cross, centered on the kingdom values that shaped the circumference of these communities called the church. Margaret Mead, who was part of the Clapham sect that brought down the slave trade, she was a really good friend of William Wilberforce. She said this, Never doubt that a group of thoughtful, committed citizens 
can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. You say, well, how do you know that, that, that what happened wouldn't have happened anyway? That the changes of values that went from the strong to the weak, you know, how do you know that that wouldn't have to sort of evolve through, through the myth of progress? Well, you can trace this back, you know. In fact, uh, Tom Holland, who's one of Britain's top scholars and historians, did not consider himself a Christian until he began to study what the world was like before the cross and after the cross. And you, you can hear him saying in an interview I listened to uh, last year, uh, in, in, in this interview he said, you know, I, I looked at the ancient world and I, I looked at these conquerors and I looked at, at the, the way that they behaved and I looked at what people aspired to and I said, I cannot identify with that culture, with those values, with the self at the center. I can't identify with that. And he says to this friend of his who's an atheist and it kind of shocked him in the interview. He said, you know what I realized? He said, what? He said, I'm a Christian. You see, communities centered on Christ, centered on the cross, begin to change in their circumference. Jesus touched the untouchable. And eventually, that mustard seed of the kingdom began to grow out, and Christians developed and formed the first hospitals. You see? Jesus was no respecter of persons, neither slave nor free, male nor female, slave nor, I mean, Jew nor Greek. He recognized that all people had dignity, made in the image and nature of God, and then eventually that mustard seed of the kingdom that centered, uh, centered the communities that, that began to change even politics. And the Magna Carta was developed as the first rule of law that applied equally to all people, no matter what. Jesus, who grew up in Galilee, not far from a town called Sephorus, which had, in, in, in the Roman world, one of the, the largest theaters. One of the largest theaters. You know what, I, what an actor was called in that day was called a hypocrite. And Jesus took that. You know, hypocrites, there was no such thing as a hypocrite, except in the context of the theater. And Jesus used that as an illustration and began to expose that the inside, what what was, what was really going on in you was just as important as what you could see on the outside. And so we're going to be looking throughout the fall at seven doors that let the kingdom in. Because what, what is at the center of your life will shape the circumference. First today, beginning with blessing. With the blessing of God. With in other words, relationship. Blessing is one of those words that it's like a jewel. You can turn it this way and in one context it sort of shines off one particular kind of definition, another, another. But blessing, the heart of blessing is like, just picture those two tablets where your relationship with God begins to be restored and healed and as a result, your relationships with other people begin to be restored and healed. That's the blessing. How does the kingdom begin in you? Where is that mustard seed? How does it get planted? Through the blessing of God. How does the blessing get in? Well, that's what we're going to explore this morning. As I read from the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, what you're going to see 
is that what brings in blessing is something kind of shocking. It's a shock to the world. And that's why he uses this strange juxtaposition of poor and mournful. He wants to get our attention that what brings in blessing is mercy. The mercy of God. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word this morning. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. <laughs> Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God bless us in this, this holy word. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but let us not have the outside different from the inside. Bring it all the way into our hearts, that through our lives it may live its way out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So bless him. David, David Lee Roth, just let, let that rain in this room from David Lee Roth. Probably the only, only time that that name has ever been said is what David Lee Roth said that, that money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a yacht. Come up right next to it. And thanks. Let's, let's contrast that with Aristotle, who said, you know, happiness isn't something we pursue. You know, our country. One of the founding documents says that pursuit, that we are free for the pursuit of happiness. Aristotle said, happiness isn't something you pursue. It's something you attract. Now, that's so much more like what Jesus is getting at here. That, that there is a capacity for blessing. Not just a shallow happiness, but a, a deep shalom. In the Old Testament, they call it shalom. Just well-being, wholeness, and healing. A capacity to relate well to God and to relate well to one another. To be a person centered on the cross with a circumference that begins to take shape far from the distortions of worldly values. Well, what does that look like? Now, I fear that we want, today, we want the principles without the person. There are all kinds of amazing books being published today that borrow from Christianity without the cross. A Christless Christianity. Books that I read that I think, this is amazing. Where did she get this? Where did he get this? I know exactly where he got it. The guy from Christianity. And so today we're, we're adrift in our culture where we want the principle, but not the person. Jesus begins with mercy because we need to relate to God as God. Otherwise, 
Eventually, the values and the principles will be lost. We don't have the heart of the value, of the virtue, of the kingdom. Without our relationship to God. So how does that happen? Let's look at, at how mercy gets in and what, why it wants out. Those are the two things this morning. How mercy gets into human life and why it wants out. Mercy gets in. How it gets in is through the cracks. It gets in through the cracks in your strength or what you thought was a strength. When you begin to see that your greatest strength is actually the place where you are alienated from God, independent of God, making life, life work for you apart from God, you begin to see the crack. There's where mercy begins to enter into your life. How does mercy get in? It gets into the cracks of your strength. That's why the first half of the attitudes are all about the seeking values. They're called the seeking values. The second half are, are about serving values. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the first half is seeking values. are people who see the need for mercy. See the need to relate to God as God. See the need to, to see something that was broken, restored, and healed. And to relate to God on a different basis as a child of God. Not on the basis of anything we do, but on the basis of who. Now, not everybody wants that. I remember when I was uh, in high school, I was talking to a friend of mine's mother. And she said, you know, your family goes to church, right? Why don't you go to church? I said, yeah. She said, well, I bet you all talk about sin, don't you? You talk about sin. And I said, well, uh, <laughs> from time to time, I guess. And uh, she says, uh, well, I just don't like it. This is, I, I just don't like it. I feel bad about myself like that. You know, I believe that when I die, I'm just going to become a, a beautiful butterfly. She said that. This was, a, this was almost verbatim. But people, people believe sometimes that when you raise the word or talk about a word like sin, that, that you're trying to make them just feel bad. No, this is just naming something that's true about us, that we are bad. That there's something broken. It's not to feel bad, it's to see the need. It's to see that even in our strength, even in our place of greatest strength, is a place of independence. But we're trying to make life work for us apart from God. Blessed are the poor. And you can see a little bit more what that means. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they begin to see the cracks in the strength. And begin to relate to God to receive an invitation. To have the consequences of alienation from God because of my strength. To have those consequences removed. And to relate to God not on the basis of my accomplishments, my performance. But to begin to receive that incredible blessing that, that says, I, I love you for who you are and not what you do. Now that's a profound happiness. A profound wholeness. Profound sense of shalom, peace. <coughs> Let me just illustrate that for you, what, what I think it looks like. Have you seen the story about uh, uh, Dick and, and Richard Hoyt, father and son? Richard was born with uh, serious 
problems physically. And they thought he was uh, just really uh, very seriously compromised mentally. But eventually what, what they recognized was when they would tell a joke, he would laugh. And they realized, Richard is in there. I mean, there is a person in there. And, and they began to nurture this, almost like Helen Keller, who was just, you know, just this incredible mind, but couldn't get out. Richard was that way. And, and, and Richard began to grow. And they took him to Tufts University and they developed the capacity for him to, to, to just move his head and begin to communicate. And he began to learn and grow. And eventually what he said to his father, Richard said to his father, he said, I want to run. He was in a wheelchair. He could only move just by barely moving his, his fingers. He said, I want to run. So his father, who was 40-something, and had never run in his life, he said, he's a porker. This is how he described himself. He's a porker. He said, he said okay, we'll go ahead and they ran a 5K. And he said, when I run, I don't feel disabled. They have completed over 100 Ironman and marathon competitions. You, you know what I'm talking about now? It's just amazing to see this symbiotic relationship between father and son. To see the joy and the glory of a father who, who, who recognizes the weight and worth of a human life, no matter how broken it looks like on the outside. Why do we love that story? Why does that resonate with us? Why? Because when we look at Richard, when I look at Richard, I see me. Don't you see you? This is the gospel. The mercy of God. Valuing you. Valuing human life. Because of who you are. Not because of what you can do. How does it get in? How does mercy get in? When we begin to receive that blessing of God. In the cracks of our strength. Receive the mercy of God in the places that we thought were strength. The very place that we are alienated from God, we need to have restored to us. It's the first half of the Ten Commandments. You see how Jesus is bringing the relationship to bear upon not rules to get into the kingdom, but the relationship that brings the kingdom into us. That's how mercy gets in. That's how the blessing gets in. So how does it, why does it, why not? Why does mercy get out after that? It gets out. The second half of the Ten Commandments are all about, you know, do not lie, and adultery, steal, murder, covet. All those, those values that have to do with human relationships. Why does mercy want out? Well, mercy gets in. How it gets in is it gets in the cracks. Because we see our need. Well, the reason why mercy wants out is we see cracks in other people. We see cracks in the systems that we build. We see cracks in the institutions. We see cracks in, in everyday human relationships. And we have something that can step into the gap that is not just a crazy cycle. 
of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. said that if, if our ethic is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, then we're going to be a, a blind and toothless generation, right? <laughs> but here, here is a different ethic. You know, people call it the upside-down kingdom. It's reversing the value system. A different way of being human. And you will see that there's a need out there that the crazy cycle of tit-for-tat, of hit and be hit back, of doing unto others before they do unto you, right? Of the strong eating the weak. And that's going to make us blind and toothless. Mercy wants that. Why? Because we can comfort others with the comfort we receive. Because we can have a different power, a more profound power, a power that is linked, heaven to earth, that brings the kingdom of God and its values into human relationships. This is why mercy wants out. It's not a condition of your salvation, but it is certainly a consequence of it. When mercy gets in, it's going to want out. When you see that you can meet a need in a different way than the pilots could. That's why the second half of these beatitudes are called the serving beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. You say, well, Tim, this is a little naive. I mean, look at North Korea, look at Syria, look at Look at uh, Lebanon, look at, look at all these different hot spots around the world. This is a little naive. Jesus was not a pacifist. I mean, he, he turned over tables. He, he, he defended the institution that represented God, and he drew lines violently. But when it comes to interpersonal relationships, Jesus turned the other cheek. He said, there's a power we can draw on. There's a resource that we can have that when you put that resource at the center of your life, you call it the kingdom of God, your circumference begins to change and it begins to change and fill in the cracks that nothing else in the world can fill. You see? You see, mercy doesn't ignore wrongdoing and injustice, but it rewrites the narrative around it. And that's key. You understand how narrative, how powerful narrative is. Today we have these competing narratives in the postmodern world. You know, it's, it's my truth versus your truth, and I've got a better argument, and you just lose. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I won the argument, and so, you know, I carry the day. It doesn't matter. Truth is relevant. This is our day and age. You know how powerful narrative is. You see, the gospel is the narrative that lines up with virtue, that connects heaven and earth, that changes the world. And when your life is centered on it, you begin to move into those cracks with something different, a different kind of resource. I want to illustrate this kind of closing with uh, a living person who experienced just how powerful this different narrative is, even in the midst of war. And when I was at Gordon Conwell in the early 90s, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Croatia, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, was at war. 
And a guy named Damir Smoljarek became a friend of mine there who was from Croatia. And he was going to be leading uh, one of the biggest churches over there. He had been leading it, but he, he didn't have the benefit of, of an education, of a, of a master's degree. He came to the United States to get an MBA from Guantanamo. And Damir showed me what was going on over there. He showed me and the press how, uh, in contrast to what was being said, the values of the press were not always lined up with the truth, and they didn't always say what was going on over there. And you know what was going on over there was that the church was quietly leading differently. And so when the Yugoslavian, uh, former Yugoslavia was broken out back into its different countries, the church was ready. <coughs> These Jesus communities, these communities built upon the cross, built upon this different set of values, they were ready to bring peace. Miroslav Holt, who is a professor at, uh, has been a professor at Princeton, a friend of Damir, formerly of Croatia, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. I've read to you a quotation from him before, a couple of years ago. I'm going to read it again this morning. It really sums up what it looks like to take kingdom values into those human relationships. And how different it is. See, he tells a story in that, in that book uh, of, a, of a father who lost his son in the war. His name is Rizzo. And Rizzo reached out to the very soldiers that killed his son. He did not ignore the pain. He did not dismiss or, or minimize how how brutal and damaging it was to him and to his family and to his community, but he rewrote the narrative around it. Rather than vengeance, rather than hitting back, he set this powerful, not just example, but brought the power of the kingdom of God into those human relationships. Not eye for eye, not tooth for tooth, not the pilot's code, the kingdom power of turning the other cheek. This is what Miroslav Volf says about it. He says this. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But if I am a sinner, then my enemy and I have something in common. We are both wayward and in deep need. Of mercy. <laughs> comfort in others, the comfort we receive. Can you see how operating like that points beyond human power? Can you see how an appeal to the grace of God, to the mercy of God, to the peace of God has to be lived out in those places, those dark places? in order for us to have the credibility to continue to shape this culture. You know, sometimes Christians are being beaten by their own sticks, right? We, they say we're, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, when, every time I hear that, I think, well, come on in, there's always room for one day. <laughs> there was no hypocrite before Christ. There was only the pilot's code. And, and if we're going to continue to to see our family shaped by this, you and I have to have our relationship right with Christ. 
centered on you. And let the circumference take care of itself. Too many of you come here and you think, I'm going to be a small group and I'm going to work at the circumference. I'm going to work on my behaviors. I'm going to get this thing right. God's going to bless me. That's not how it works. You're blessed to be a blessing. What's at the center will shape the circumference. Is your relationship right? Is it growing? Are the kingdom values beginning to expand in you and turning from an amoeba to the beauty and simplicity of the circle? Close with this. I, I, was, uh, I was young and I made a traffic error. But I thought I could pop my way out of it. And I went to court. And I actually thought I had a case. And I presented my case very poorly. And uh, when I got up to go pay the clerk, <laughs> the judge said to me, next time, don't try to argue for your rights. Plead for mercy. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy that has changed our hearts to change the world. Lord, as we, in these closing moments, unite our hearts and voices together help us to see and remember it is your mercy that binds us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.